Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swami Nathan. And I'm Jenny Beckesney. So Jenny, this has been our talks month, and you know, we are the talk center of the world, whether the rest of the world agrees with that or not, we <laughs> believe it to be true. I thought we would do some talk stuff. So we had a great talk from Silas Smith, one of our senior toxicology faculty on carbon monoxide poisoning. And like I said, we haven't done a bunch of talks, and this is a pretty common one, so let's dive in. I think that's a great idea. All right, so let's start with the basics. Carbon monoxide is a colorless, odorless gas that results from incomplete combustion of any carbon-containing product. So there are a number of potential sources, and the most common is an accidental exposure. These are things like faulty home heaters, camp stoves. Sometimes people are using gas-powered generators indoor, which, I don't know, those things are so loud, I can't understand why anyone would do that, but it happens. Uh, Structural fires, and then there's also the concern for intentional exposures, like in suicide attempts. Once the carbon monoxide is inhaled into the lungs, it's going to enter the bloodstream where it's going to bind to the hemoglobin. Now, it has an affinity for hemoglobin that is a lot stronger than its affinity for oxygen. So the carbon monoxide is going to bind stronger. Carbon monoxide binds to deoxyhemoglobin forming carboxyhemoglobin. The bond between carbon monoxide and hemoglobin is strong, and it's going to slowly reverse. So people can accumulate these really high levels of carboxyhemoglobin through really low levels of exposure over time. So that's a nice review of the pathophysiology. And as a result of this interaction, you get reduction of the oxygen-carrying capacity caused by carbon monoxide binding. The interesting thing is that that reduction in oxygen-carrying capacity isn't what affects the profoundly poisoned patient. It's really not enough of an effect to cause the problems. Instead, it's probably carbon monoxide's affinity to affect cellular oxygen use at the tissue level by binding to cytochromes in the mitochondria, and this inhibits oxidative phosphorylation and causes cellular death, and that's more likely the culprit when you have severe poisoning. The exception to this is in pregnant patients, and that's because the fetus is at much higher risk for decreased oxygen carrying capacity. Regardless of the exact mechanism, though, it's important that we are able to quickly see and recognize the signs and symptoms of carbon monoxide poisoning so that we can get the treatment started right away and so that any repeat exposure the patient might be susceptible to can be avoided. Carbon monoxide signs and symptoms vary based on the severity of exposure. When you have mild poisoning, patients are going to come in with nonspecific symptoms. Headache, nausea, vomiting, dizziness, maybe vision blurring, palpitations, sometimes a little bit of confusion or even myalgias. So obviously, nothing of that is particularly life-threatening sounding. But at this point, what we need to do is recognize that this could be carbon monoxide. It's really easy to just kind of chalk these symptoms up to the flu or some little virus, especially in the winter months when carbon monoxide poisoning and colds are much more common. If the diagnosis is missed, this can be pretty scary because the patient can just be sent back to wherever they're being exposed and end up with much more severe poisoning. Well, since you're talking about severe poisoning, what are the symptoms that you see with that? So with that, you're going to have altered mental status, seizures, comas, dysrhythmia, myocardial ischemia, metabolic acidosis, syncope, and vital sign abnormalities that could include hypotension and then eventually cardiac arrest. So definitely some bad stuff and why we want to catch these before the patient goes back to wherever their exposure was and then gets the worst exposure or the worst poisoning. Clearly, we don't want the patients with mild symptoms to simply be chalked up to a virus, but this is where we can miss the diagnosis. 
Are there things that we can do to catch this on the first presentation, things that we can ask, things that we can be looking for? So as with anything, really, the first thing is that you really just have to have it on your differential diagnosis when the patient's presenting with these kind of vague, nonspecific symptoms. You can't make the diagnosis if you don't at least think of the possibility. That's a very profound statement. Anything else that's going to help to tip us aside from just having it in our list of differential? So most exposures are in the home. So you can ask if there are other people in the home who aren't feeling well. Now, the only problem there is that the patients that have the flu or the common cold are often going to infect all of the people that live with them. So they're going to feel horrible too. So if the exposure is in the home, the patient may report feeling better during the day when they leave the house to go to work or school or something. So ask if there's any variations in their symptoms based on where they are during the day. Chronic headaches that are new may also be a tip-off and should make you consider CO poisoning. Remember, this can accumulate over time. Environmental questions are going to help too. Is there a wood-burning stove in the house? Is there a generator in use? And things like that. Sick pets may help as well, since most human cold and flu viruses don't affect animals. So somebody comes in, they tell you their entire family has had these vague symptoms, but oh yeah, also the cat's sick. That should be a tip-off that maybe carbon monoxide should be considered. Now let's say something in the history tips you off. What testing can help make the diagnosis? So co-oximetry is going to be your go-to test here. Now for this, it doesn't matter whether you send arterial or venous blood. The coox is going to give you your answer. Coox, unlike the finger oxygen saturation monitor, can distinguish between the different hemoglobins, including carboxyhemoglobin and methemoglobin, and of course, oxyhemoglobin. Under normal circumstances, people really should not have any carboxyhemoglobin. So on the coox panel, it should be zero. But for people like you and me who live in the city, you might have a level up to 1% or 2%, and that can be normal. And in smokers, you can have a bit higher level, around maybe 6 to 10%, and for them, that would be normal. The coox gives you the diagnosis, but it's also important to know that there's little correlation between the absolute carboxyhemoglobin level and the symptoms the patient exhibits. The carboxyhemoglobin can change rapidly, particularly if there's severe poisoning, once the patient is outside of that exposure. So the carboxyhemoglobin is going to fall once the patient's removed from wherever they're being exposed, and it may not tell you how bad the initial exposure was. The bottom line here is that the symptoms guide treatment, not the absolute carboxyhemoglobin level. All right, so let's talk about the treatment. You've made the diagnosis, and now it's time to treat. It's pretty simple here. You're going to give oxygen therapy. Oxygen acts by decreasing the half-life of carboxyhemoglobin. So if you give 100% FiO2, the half-life drops from 5 hours to 1 hour, so you can clear the carboxyhemoglobin from the body much faster. If the patient has mild to moderate symptoms, you can just whip out a non-rebreather, maybe some high-flow nasal cannula, and just wait and watch. When the patient's symptoms resolve, you can stop the high-flow FiO2. Anything else that we can offer? Well, hyperbaric oxygen is an option in patients who are having severe symptoms. Hyperbaric oxygen further decreases the half-life of carboxyhemoglobin to 20 to 30 minutes, so it allows for even faster elimination. The problem with this is that the vast majority of our hospitals don't have hyperbaric chambers, and there can be a long transport time to get a patient to the chamber. Because of this delay, hyperbarics is rarely going to be a life-saving treatment, but it can prevent long-term neurologic sequelae. It's reasonable to consider getting a patient to a hyperbaric chamber if they've got neurologic abnormalities, altered mental status seizures, or cardiovascular instability, including syncope, myocardial ischemia, or dysrhythmias. 
The benefit appears to be more pronounced when hyperbarics are started within six hours. So if you don't have a hyperbaric chamber in your hospital, you got to make this call pretty early so you can get the patient shipped out. The other group of patients that you're always going to want to consider hyperbarics for are the pregnant ones. Because the fetus is more susceptible to hypoxia, hyperbarics has a greater potential to be beneficial. In these cases, the carboxyhemoglobin level is more likely to be used as a guide for treatment. Any level above 15% is often used to initiate hyperbarics, even in the absence of significant symptoms in the mom. One last thing to consider in patients with smoke exposure, like in a building fire, is that they could have concomitant carbon monoxide and cyanide poisoning, and that's actually pretty common. Patients can have similar symptoms with these disorders, so it can be hard to know if you've got one, the other, or possibly both. A couple of quick tips to help determine if cyanide is at play is if the lactate's greater than 10, or if there's arterialization of the venous blood, which means that the venous blood is bright red. That occurs because cyanide prevents tissue extraction of oxygen, leading to venous blood being higher in oxygen content. It was a bigger deal in the past to know if you had cyanide poisoning or carbon monoxide poisoning because you couldn't just treat every smoke inhalation for cyanide poisoning because the nitrite used in the antidote can worsen the carbon monoxide poisoning. That would have been bad. Now we use hydroxycobalamin as our go-to antidote for cyanide poisoning, so we really don't have that same issue. Well, that's a nice quick review of carbon monoxide poisoning, but how about we hit the listeners with some take-home points before we go? Right. So carbon monoxide poisoning happens most often from some common accidental exposures like heaters, camp stoves, generators, or for intentional exposures like suicide attempts. Patients might come in with some mild symptoms like headaches, nausea, vision changes, myalgias, things that can be confused with a cold or the flu, and then more severe exposures are going to have things like altered mental status, seizures, MIs, acidosis, syncope, and then ultimately cardiac arrest. To distinguish between these vague symptoms of the chronic exposures, ask about things like whether they feel better in different environments, whether they have any sick pets, because usually our viral illnesses aren't going to affect our pets. If you're concerned about carbon monoxide, send a coax panel. It's pretty easy. City dwellers may have a baseline carboxyhemoglobin of 1% to 2%, smokers around 6 to 10%, but really others should have no carboxyhemoglobin. And then last, treatment is going to be with supplemental O2, which can be stopped when the symptoms improve. For severe symptoms or for pregnant patients, consider your hyperbarics to prevent long-term sequelae and to protect the fetus. And then, as always, consider discussing the case with your local poison center because they can help you decide whether the patient warrants transfer to hyperbarics. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. we got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google Plus, and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week.